Continuation of Chapter 2, The Early Life of Christ Presentation in the Temple At Bethlehem he had been in exile, at the circumcision an anticipated savior. Now at the presentation he became a sign to be contradicted. As Jesus was circumcised, so Mary was purified, though he needed not the first because he was God, and she needed not the second because she was conceived without sin. And when the time had come for purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him before the Lord there. Luke 2.22 The fact of sin in human nature is underlined not only by the necessity of enduring pain to expiate for it in circumcision, but also by the need for purification. Ever since Israel had been delivered from the bondage of the Egyptians after the firstborn of the Egyptians had been slain, the firstborn of the Jews had always been looked upon as one dedicated to God. Forty days after his birth, which was the appointed time for a male child according to the law, Jesus was brought to the temple. Exodus decreed that the firstborn belonged to God. In the book of Numbers, the tribe of Levi was set apart for the priestly function, and this priestly dedication was understood as a substitute for the sacrifice of the firstborn, a rite which was never practiced. But when the divine child was taken to the temple by Mary, the law of the consecration of the firstborn was observed in its fullness, for this child's dedication to the Father was absolute and would lead him to the cross. We find here another instance of how God in the form of man shared the poverty of mankind. The traditional offerings for purification were a lamb and a turtle dove if the parents were rich, and two doves or two pigeons if they were poor. Thus the mother who brought the Lamb of God into the world had no lamb to offer except the Lamb of God. God was presented in the temple at the age of forty days. About thirty years later, he would claim the temple and use it as the symbol of his body in which dwelt the fullness of divinity. Here it was not the firstborn of Mary alone who was presented, but the firstborn of the Eternal Father. As the only begotten of the Father, he was now presented as the firstborn of a restored humanity. A new race began in him. The character of the man in the temple whose name was Simeon and who received the child is described simply as an upright man of careful observance, who waited patiently for comfort to be brought to Israel. Luke 2.25 It was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he was not to meet death until he had seen that Christ whom the Lord had anointed. Luke 2.26 His words seem to imply that as soon as one sees Christ, the sting of death departs. The old man, taking the child in his arms, exclaimed with joy, Ruler of all, now dost thou let thy servant go in peace, according to thy word. For my own eyes have seen that saving power of thine, which thou hast prepared in the sight of all nations. This is the light which shall give revelation to the Gentiles. This is the glory of thy people Israel. Luke 2.29 Simeon was like a sentinel whom God had sent to watch for the light. When the light finally appeared, he was ready to sing his Nunc Dimittis. In a poor child brought by poor people making a poor offering, Simeon discovered the riches of the world. As this old man held the child in his arms, he was not like the aged of whom Horace speaks. He did not look back, but forward, and not only to the future of his own people, but to the future of all the Gentiles, of all the tribes and nations of the earth. An old man at the sunset of his own life spoke of the sunrise of the world. In the evening of life he told of the promise of a new day. He had seen the Messiah before by faith. Now his eyes could close, for there was nothing more beautiful to look upon. Some flowers open only in the evening. What he had seen now was salvation, not salvation from poverty, but salvation from sin. Simeon's hymn was an act of adoration. There are three acts of adoration described in the early life of the divine child. The shepherds adored, Simeon and Anna the prophetess adored, and the heathen magi adored. 
The Song of Simeon was like a sunset in which a shadow heralds a substance. It was the first hymn by men in the life of Christ. Simeon, though addressing Mary and Joseph, did not address the child. It would not have been fitting to give his blessing to the Son of the Highest. He blessed them, but he did not bless the child. After his hymn of praise, he addressed himself only to the mother. Simeon knew that she, and not Joseph, was related to the babe in his arms. He saw furthermore that there were sorrows in store for her, not for Joseph. Simeon said, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and for the rise of many in Israel, and for a sign that shall be contradicted. Luke 2.34 It was as if the whole history of the divine child were passing before the eyes of the old man. Every detail of that prophecy was to be fulfilled within the lifetime of the babe. Here was a hard fact of the cross, affirmed even before the tiny arms of the babe could stretch themselves out straight enough to make the form of a cross. The child would create terrible strife between good and evil, stripping the masks from each, thus provoking a terrible hatred. He would be at once a stumbling block, a sword that would divide evil from good, and a touchstone that would reveal the motives and dispositions of human hearts. Men would no longer be the same once they had heard his name and learned of his life. They would be compelled either to accept him or reject him, about him there would be no such thing as compromise, only acceptance or rejection, resurrection or death. He would, by his very nature, make men reveal their secret attitudes toward God. His mission would be not to put souls on trial, but to redeem them. And yet, because their souls were sinful, some men would detest his coming. It would henceforth be his fate to encounter fanatical opposition from mankind even unto death itself, and this would involve Mary in cruel distress. The angel had told her, Blessed art thou among women, and Simeon was now telling her that in her blessedness she would be the Mater Dolorosa. One of the penalties of original sin was that a woman should bring forth her child in sorrow. Simeon was saying that she would continue to live in the sorrow of her child. If he was to be the man of sorrows, she would be the mother of sorrows. An unsuffering Madonna to the suffering Christ would be a loveless Madonna. Since Christ loved mankind so much that he wanted to die to expiate its guilt, then he would also will that his mother should be wrapped in the swaddling bands of his own grief. From the moment she heard Simeon's words, she would never again lift the child's hands without seeing a shadow of nails on them. Every sunset would be a blood-red image of his passion. Simeon was throwing away the sheath that hid the future from human eyes and letting the blade of the world's sorrow flash in front of her eyes. Every pulse that she would feel in the tiny wrist would be like an echo of an oncoming hammer. If he was dedicated to salvation through suffering, so was she. No sooner was this young life launched than Simeon, like an old mariner, talked of shipwreck. No cup of the father's bitterness had yet come to the lips of the babe, and yet a sword was shown to his mother. The nearer Christ comes to a heart, the more it becomes conscious of its guilt. It will then either ask for his mercy and find peace, or else it will turn against him because it is not yet ready to give up its sinfulness. Thus he will separate the good from the bad, the wheat from the chaff. Man's reaction to this divine presence will be the test. Either it will call out all the opposition of egotistic natures, or else galvanize them into a regeneration and a resurrection. Simeon was practically calling him the divine disturber, who would provoke human hearts either to good or evil. Once confronted with him, they must subscribe either to light or darkness. Before everyone else they can be broad-minded, but his presence reveals their hearts to be either fertile ground or hard rock. He cannot come to hearts without clarifying them and dividing them. Once in his presence, a heart discovers both its own thoughts about goodness and its own thoughts about God. This could never be so if he were just a humanitarian teacher. Simeon knew this well, and he told our Lord's mother that her son must suffer because his life would be so much opposed to the complacent maxims by which most men govern their lives. He would act on one soul in one way, and on another in another way, as the sun shines on wax and softens it, and shines on mud and hardens it. 
There is no difference in the sun, only in the objects on which it shines. As the light of the world, he would be a joy to the good and the lovers of light, but he would be like a probing searchlight to those who were evil and preferred to live in darkness. The seed is the same, but the soil is different, and each soil will be judged by the way it reacts to the seed. The will of Christ to save is limited by the free action of each soul either to accept or reject. That was what Simeon meant by saying, And so the thoughts of many hearts shall be made manifest. Luke 2.35 an Eastern fable tells of a magic mirror that remained clear when the good looked upon it, and became sullied when the impure gazed at it. Thus the owner could always tell the character of those who used it. Simeon was telling his mother that her son would be like this mirror. Men would either love or hate him, according to their own reflections. A light falling on a sensitive photographic plate registers a chemical change that cannot be effaced. Simeon was saying that the light of this babe falling on Jew and Gentile would stamp on each the ineffaceable vestige of its presence. Simeon also said that the babe would disclose the true inner dispositions of men. He would test the thoughts of all who were to encounter him. Pilate would temporize and then weaken. Herod would mock. Judas would lean to a kind of greedy social security. Nicodemus would sneak in darkness to find the light. Tax collectors would become honest. Prostitutes pure. Rich young men would reject his poverty. Prodigals would return home. Peter would repent. An apostle would hang himself. From that day to this, he continues to be assigned to be contradicted. It was fitting, therefore, that he should die on a piece of wood in which one bar contradicted the other. The vertical bar of God's will is negated by the horizontal bar of the contradicting human will. As the circumcision pointed to the shedding of blood, so the purification foretold his crucifixion. After saying that he was assigned to be contradicted, Simeon turned to the mother, adding, As for thy own soul, it shall have a sword to pierce it. Luke 2.35 she was told that he would be rejected by the world, and with his crucifixion there would be her transfixion. As the child willed the cross for himself, so he willed the sword of sorrow for her. If he chose to be a man of sorrows, he also chose her to be a mother of sorrows. God does not always spare the good from grief. The father spared not the son, and the son spared not the mother. With his passion there must be her compassion. An unsuffering Christ who did not freely pay the debt of human guilt would be reduced to the level of an ethical guide, and a mother who did not share in his sufferings would be unworthy of her great role. Simeon not only unsheathed the sword, he also told her where providence had destined it to be driven. Later on, the child would say, I came to bring the sword. Simeon told her that she would feel it in her heart while her son was hanging on the sign of contradiction and she was standing beneath it transfixed in grief. The spear that would physically pierce his heart would mystically be run into her own heart. The babe came to die, not to live, for his name was Savior. Magi and the Slaughter of the Innocents Simeon had foretold that the divine babe would be a light to the Gentiles. They were already on the march. At his birth there were the Magi, or the scientists of the East. At his death there would be the Greeks, or the philosophers of the West. The psalmist had foretold that the kings of the East would come to do homage to Emmanuel. Following a star, they came to Jerusalem to ask Herod where the king had been born. And thereupon certain wise men came out of the East to Jerusalem who asked, Where is he that has been born, the king of the Jews? We have seen his star out in the east, and we have come to worship him. Matthew 2, 1 It was a star that led them. God spoke to the Gentiles through nature and philosophers, to the Jews through prophecies. The time was ripe for the coming of the Messiah, and the whole world knew it. Though they were astrologers, the slight vestige of truth in their knowledge of the stars led them to the star out of Jacob, as the unknown god of the Athenians later on would be the occasion for Paul preaching to them the god whom they knew not but dimly desired. Though coming from a land that worshipped stars, they surrendered that religion as they fell down and worshipped him who made the stars. 
the Gentiles in fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah, came to him from the ends of the earth. The star which disappeared during the interrogation of Herod reappeared and finally stood over the place where the child was born. They, when they saw the star, were glad beyond measure, and so, going into the dwelling, they found the child there with his mother Mary, and fell down to worship him, and opening their store of treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Matthew 2.10 Isaiah had prophesied, A stream of camels thronging about thee, dromedaries from Madian and Ephah, bringing all the men of Saba with their gifts of gold and incense, their cry of praise to the Lord. Isaiah 60.6 They brought three gifts, gold to honor his kingship, frankincense to honor his divinity, and myrrh to honor his humanity, which was destined for death. Myrrh was used at his burial. The crib and the cross are related again, for there is myrrh at both. When the Magi came from the east bringing gifts for the babe, Herod the Great knew that the time had come for the birth of the king announced clearly to the Jews and apprehended dimly in the aspirations of the Gentiles. But like all carnal-minded men, he lacked a spiritual sense and therefore felt certain that the king would be a political one. He made inquiries as to where Christ was to be born. The chief priests and learned men told him, At Bethlehem in Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. Herod said that he wanted to worship the babe, but his actions proved what he really meant. If this is the Messiah, I must kill him. Meanwhile, when he found that the wise men had played him false, Herod was angry beyond measure. He sent and made away with all the male children in Bethlehem. Matthew 2.16 Herod will forever be the model of those who make inquiries about religion, but who never act rightly on the knowledge they receive. Like train announcers, they know all the stations, but never travel. Head knowledge is worthless, unless accompanied by submission of the will and right action. Totalitarians are fond of saying that Christianity is the enemy of the state, a euphemistic way of saying an enemy of themselves. Herod was the first totalitarian to sense this. He found Christ to be his enemy before he was two years old. Could a babe born under the earth in a cave shake potentates and kings? Could he, who as yet had no demos or people following him, be a dangerous enemy of the demos kratos, or democracy, the rule of the people? No mere human baby could ever provoke such violence by a state. The Tsar did not fear Stalin, the son of a cobbler, when he was two years old. He did not drive the cobbler's son and his mother into exile for fear that he would one day be a menace to the world. Similarly, no swords hung over the head of the infant Hitler, nor did the government move against Mao Zedong while he was still in swaddling clothes because it feared that he would someday deliver China to the murderous sickle. Why then were the soldiers summoned against this infant? It must surely have been because those who possess the spirit of the world conceal an instinctive hatred and jealousy of God who reigns over human hearts. The hatred the second Herod would show Christ at his death had its prologue in the hatred of his father, Herod the Great, for Christ as a babe. Herod was fearful that he who came to bring a heavenly crown would steal away his own tinsel one. He pretended that he wanted to bring gifts, but the only gift he wanted to bring was death. Wicked men sometimes hide their evil designs under an appearance of religion. I am a religious man, but... Men can make inquiries about Christ for two reasons, either to worship or to harm. Some would even make use of religion for their evil designs, as Herod made use of the wise men. Inquiries about religion do not produce the same results in all hearts. What men ask about divinity is never as important as why they ask it. Before Christ was two years of age, there was a shedding of blood for his sake. It was the first attempt on his life. A sword for the babe, stones for the man, the cross at the end. That was how his own received him. Bethlehem was the dawn of Calvary. The law of sacrifice that would wind itself around him and his apostles, and around so many of his followers for centuries to come, began its work by snatching these young lives which are so happily commemorated in the Feast of the Holy Innocents. An upended cross for Peter, a push from a steeple for James, a knife for Bartholomew, a cauldron of oil followed by long waiting for John, 
a sword for Paul, and many swords for the innocent babies of Bethlehem. The world will hate you, Christ promised all those who were signed with his seal. These innocents died for the king whom they had never known. Like little lambs, they died for the sake of the lamb, the prototypes of a long procession of martyrs, these children who never struggled but were crowned. In the circumcision he shed his own blood. Now his coming heralds the shedding of the blood of others for his sake. As circumcision was the mark of the old law, so persecution would be the mark of the new law. For my name's sake, he told his apostles, they would be hated. All things around him speak of his death, for that was the purpose of his coming. The very entrance door over the stable where he was born was marked with blood, as was the threshold of the Jews in Egypt. Innocent lambs in the Passover bled for him in centuries past, now innocent children without spot, little human lambs, bled for him. But God warned the wise men not to return to Herod, so they returned to their own country by a different way. Matthew 2.12 No one who ever meets Christ with a good will returns the same way as he came. Baffled in his design to kill the divine, the enraged tyrant ordered the indiscriminate slaughter of all male children under two years of age. There are more ways than one of practicing birth control. Mary was already prepared for a cross in the life of her babe, but Joseph, moving on a lower level of awareness, needed the revelation of an angel, telling him to take the child and his mother into Egypt. Rise up, take with thee the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. There remain until I give thee word, for Herod will soon be making search for the child to destroy him. He rose up, therefore, while it was still night, and took the child and his mother with him, and withdrew into Egypt, where he remained until the death of Herod. Matthew 2.13 Exile was to be the lot of the Savior. Otherwise the millions of exiles from persecuted lands would be without a God who understood the agony of homelessness and frantic flight. By his presence in Egypt, the infant Savior consecrated a land that had been the traditional enemy of his own people, and thus gave hope to other lands which would later reject him. The exodus was reversed, as the divine child made Egypt his temporary home. Mary now sang as Miriam had done, while a second Joseph guarded the living bread for which human hearts were starving. The murder of the innocents by Herod recalls Pharaoh's slaughter of the Hebrew children, and what happened when Herod died recalled the original exodus. When Herod the Great died, an angel charted the course of Joseph, bidding him to return to Galilee. He came and settled there in fulfillment of what had been said by the prophets, He shall be a Nazarene. And now when all had been done that the law of the Lord required, they returned to Galilee and to their own town of Nazareth. Luke 2.39 the term Nazarene signified contempt. The little village was off the main roads at the foot of the mountains, nestling in a cup of hills. It was out of reach of the merchants of Greece, the legions of Rome, and the journeys of the sophisticated. It is not mentioned in ancient geographies. It deserved its name, for it was just a netzer, a sprout that grows on the stump of a tree. Centuries before, Isaiah had foretold that a branch or sprout or netzer would grow out of the roots of the country. It would seem to be of little value and many would despise it, but it would ultimately have dominion over the earth. The fact that Christ took up his residence in a despised village was a prefigurement of the obscurity and ignominy that would ever plague him and his followers. The name Nazareth would be nailed over his head on the sign of contradiction as a scornful repudiation of his claims. Before that, when Philip told Nathanael, We have discovered who it was Moses wrote of in his law, and the prophets too. It is Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth. John 1.45 Nathanael would retort, Can anything good come from Nazareth? The big cities are sometimes thought to contain all the wisdom, while the little towns are looked upon as backward and unprogressive. Christ chose the insignificant Bethlehem for the glory of his birth, the ridiculed Nazareth for his youth, but the glorious cosmopolitan Jerusalem for the ignominy of his death. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Is but the prelude to, can anything redemptive come from a man who dies on a cross? Nazareth would be a place of humiliation for him, a training ground for Golgotha. Nazareth was in Galilee, and the whole of Galilee was a despised region in the eyes of the more cultured people of Judea. 
Galilean speech was supposed to be crude and rude, so much so that when Peter denied our Lord, the maidservant reminded him that his speech betrayed him. He had been with the Galilean. No one would ever look to Galilee, therefore, for a teacher. And yet the light of the world was the Galilean. God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the self-wise and proud. Nathaniel merely gave expression to an evil prejudice probably as old as humanity itself. People and their power to teach are judged by the places whence they come. Worldly wisdom comes from where we expect it, in the best sellers, the standard brands, and the universities. Divine wisdom comes from the unsuspected quarters, which the world holds in derision. The ignominy of Nazareth would hang about him later on. His hearers would taunt, How does this man know how to read? He has never studied. John 7.15 While this was a reluctant tribute to his learning, it was also a sneer at his backwoods village. How did he know? They did not suspect the true answer. Namely, that in addition to the knowledge of his human intellect, he had a wisdom that was not school-taught, nor self-taught, nor even God-taught, in the sense in which the prophets were God-taught. He learned from his mother and the village synagogue, but the secrets of his knowledge must be found in his oneness with the Heavenly Father. 